to the Onyx Pathcast. I am one of your hosts, Matthew Dawkins, and I am accompanied by Eddie Webb. Hello. And Dixie Cochran. Hello. Today we'll be taking you down the rainbow road of Vampire the Masquerade. <laughs> via King Boo's mansion and Bowser's castle and so on and so forth. Uh, Moist Bowser? Moist Bowser or dry Bowser. Which do you prefer? So, that's that's the question to the listeners. Two episodes ago, we spent the last twenty minutes talking about three houses. Should we spend the first twenty minutes of this episode talking about Mario Kart? Uh, well, it, Dixie, uh, if Mario was a vampire, which clan would he be? Uh, Giovanni. I was pushing. I was pushing my glasses up my nose when I said that. You think oh. it'd be a Giovanni? Oh uh, yeah, he and Luigi—they're quite close, aren't they? I mean, they go in the underground a lot. Yeah. That could work. I mean, with, with with the underground thing, that would be more of like a Nosferatu kind of thing. Uh, they are kind oh, of true, working sewers. class because they're both plumbers, so they could both be like a Bruja or Gangrel type. Actually, yeah. they could be Gangrel because he puts on various animal suits <laughs> that and turns into various animal true. powers. But he also throws fireballs, so someone's been teaching him thaumatogy. Hmm. Well, it's you know it's the questions like that that <laughs> we are going to focus on. Uh, given you've probably seen the title of this podcast, which is the weirdness of Vampire the Masquerade, our initial focus wasn't going to be Vampire by way of Mario Brothers, but that's what we're doing now. <laughs> no. Uh, what, what Take we- the podcast different directions. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> skidding off, skidding off the track uh, as if hit by a banana skin. Eddie does like to play as Donkey Kong in in our Mario Kart tournaments, and it, yeah, and you really hold that third place with pride. Oh, oh. wow! Spoken by someone who left smart staring on, <laughs> and yet after I turned it off, I still beat you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I still suck. I'm not acknowledging the fact that I suck. I'm acknowledging the fact that you're not as cool as you think you are without smart stuff. No, no, that is true. Dixie suddenly started winning a lot more. So, <laughs> yeah. As, uh, as we pointed yeah. out, though, I've been playing Mario Kart the longest of the three of us, and probably the most of the three of us. So, if nothing else, I have sheer just time input on my side. Because I played with my mom when I was like 11 and 12, and then just continued to play with, with her and with friends and stuff all through high school. We were a N- Nintendo household, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think I've been playing Mario Kart 8 longer than both of you, so just by muscle memory alone, Probably. I should know the tracks pretty well. And yet there yeah. are some of them, like that damn volcano one where the track is falling down around you, that I just suck at. Uh, yeah, that's tough. I, yeah. Uh, but yeah, Vampire. Vampire the Masquerade. Back on topic, at least briefly. Uh, we were going to discuss the weirdness of Vampire because Vampire's a game the three of us all love, of course. We've all worked mm-hmm. on it in various capacities. And yet, as much as we love it, as much as we've dedicated years of our lives to it in one manner or other, <laughs> it's a game that has its share of, I guess, oddities, strange features, the bits that people don't like to talk about, or the unknown parts, uh, I guess, secrets behind its design in some cases, aborted attempts to take Metaplot in a certain direction, or try and Im- invest one character in the game's lore with a little too much focus and importance. And... Mm-hmm. 
that kind of thing has an effective way of deterring players uh, and storytellers. It can do. Sometimes it can really hook them, can drag them in and make them think, oh, I really want to play with this stuff. But also it can be a deterrent. So well, finding think, a way to balance that is, is quite interesting. I think that's something that happens in any large extended universe with multiple writers. Like if yeah. you look at the greater world of you know Star Trek or Star Wars, for instance... There are definitely some super odd properties that came out of it, whether it's, you know, one one little side comic book that featured a really weird character or, you know, somebody got way too elaborate with a certain culture's religious practices that just got very strange, you know, just that 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 mm. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so I think that with Vampire having, a, you know, almost 30 year history now and having so many people who've worked on it over the years who all probably have different areas of interest, you're you're bound to wind up with some weirdness here and there. And what what we're talking about specifically, just so that our listeners know, isn't so much going to be like, we're not here to nitpick mechanics. <laughs> right. We're here to more talk about like strange directions the meta plot took or possibly like strange properties that we, you know, ran across at one point and went, why? Why does this exist? <laughs> Look, D10s. Happy? Who who thought of using D10s, really? Right, that's the worst. Stupid dice. <laughs> Um, but I mean, I, I think the meta plot point is important because um, uh, uh, we were talking a little bit before the show the fact that very few games nowadays have a meta plot. And for those who don't know, uh, a meta plot is the idea that a property, a particular tabletop property, is usually when it's applied to, um, as new supplements come out, they advance the background of the game in a commiserate amount. Um, so a, a book that comes out 10 years later will be in a different status quo than the book that came out before it. Um, and, and really very few games nowadays still have that concept. But because when you're not only talking about 25-year property, but 25-year property that ostensibly kept moving forward and kept changing as a result of that, there are going to be these weird kind of back alleys and cul-de-sacs of, 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 of contents that just are like, whatever happened with that? Or why is that there? Because someone had an idea and it just didn't go anywhere. Yeah. And before we start talking about it in earnest, I have, I have a confession. I've already oh, no. told you to, but I've got to tell the audience. You kept smart steering on. My God. <laughs> I kept smart steering on. No, um, I played Vampire from when I was 14 or 15 until I was in my 20s uh, pretty regularly, like almost every weekend. Um, well, when I was in high school, it was during the week. And then when I got older and had a car, it was on the weekends with my friends. But Metaplot was never something I cared about. Um, I am that person, as as we've talked about before, when it comes to role-playing game books, like Matthew's the person who sits down and reads the whole book. I'm the person who flips the character creation and then flips back and forth to find out the things I need to know. Um, and then I just kind of go for it. <laughs> like, I don't really read every single bit. If I wasn't interested in a clan, I didn't read about them. Um, mm-hmm. And because of that, I don't have a lot of this meta plot knowledge. So I'm going to be here to ask questions and provide context. And I really want to learn about some of this stuff because trying to research it was very difficult. Because uh, there's so much of it all over the internet. Uh, some mm-hmm. of it on weird, you know, cached GeoCities pages from 1994. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh and my I'm god, just, yes. And like, as you know, it would be like if y'all asked me once again to you know, cram the entirety of Star Trek in the past week to prepare for this episode. I'm like, there's too much. Right. There's too much. Uh, so I know things here and there, but that was just never part of the game I enjoyed. Like, my group was so focused on the world we were building with our characters and the NPCs we met, which, for all I know, were actual Metaplot NPCs that I just don't 
I didn't know were in the meta plot. Um, but like we were so focused on that that I just never cared about that. I was like reading other vampire related media at the time when I was, you know, not playing my games. So yeah, I'm here to learn. So, I'm here to learn from the gentleman gamer. Oh, good lord. <laughs> well, I will be pleased to teach you. Go uh, put your suit on. I'm already wearing it. Every day. Every day I just sit at my desk in a suit, typing away. Now, <laughs> I'm, I'm, as ever, I am always pleased to take us off on tangents. And this is a fun tangent to do with GeoCities. <laughs> Not Yay. at all related to Vampire. Uh, although it was, I guess, it did slightly inform some of the work in Cults of the Blood Gods. Uh, so, are both of you familiar with the Heaven's Gate cult? The yes. uh, Yeah, yes. the... the uh, very tragically, uh, they they kill themselves, as many cults, I guess, or famous cults, well, end up doing. They were forced to kill themselves by their cult leader. Y- yes, their website is still up. It's a GeoCities website. It still looks exactly as it did the day before they uh, they wow killed themselves. That's creepy. And it's a really bizarre archive based on the fact that someone is still paying for it to be hosted. It is it is basically this little... It's not even a monument. It hasn't been updated since that time. And it even has a sort of message of we are going away tomorrow uh, because of Halley's Comet or whatever the port out oh was. Oh, God, I just Jeez. found it. It was the Hillbob Comet? Yes, that was it. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's bizarre because it looks like all websites did back then, but so websites do right now. And someone in the background there is just paying for its upkeep. And I can't imagine who that is. I'm sure that's an internet mystery someone will dig up at some point. But yeah, given that one would assume the members of that cult are all dead, um, maybe someone set up a standing order and their bank account was never closed down. I don't know. Yeah, that's very strange. Yeah. But yeah, moving on from less morbid topics to to vampires now. To undead, yes, that's If you well, want a, a a happier GeoCities story before we go on, just to make this a little better. <laughs> yes, please. Uh, when, I don't know if y'all saw but what but when Captain Marvel came out, they made a terrible, yes. terrible nineties GeoCities looking page for the movie. Yes. And it's amazing. If anybody out there hasn't seen it, it's pretty just it's like CaptainMarvel.com or something or Marvel.com. That's Captain Marvel. It's very easy to find. But it's really fun. It's got like a quiz you can take where you're like deciding if it's a human or a scroll. It's got magic eye posters, which I can't see, but apparently they're cool. Because um, I have astigmatism and I can't see them, in case you didn't know that. Oh. It's like a legit thing. I, I just I just can't see them. <laughs> but, but yeah, it was a really, really cool marketing thing since that movie is a 90s period piece. Anyway. Hmm. Well, I guess the best place to start is at the start. One here's one here's a weird thing about Vampire the Masquerade, and it's something I imagine both of you might know, but maybe not. Maybe not all the listeners know. Maybe we even discussed it before. Not sure. And it's to do with the involvement of the Tremere in Vampire. Why mm-hmm. they are even there mm-hmm. from the uh, very initiation of Vampire the Masquerade as a property. Uh, so the story goes that the clans, when they were initially uh, put forward, were supposed to emulate roughly D&D-style classes. Right. Uh, because initially, when uh, the proposal for Vampire the Masquerade came out, there weren't even clans. Uh, you were all effectively 
uh, Kaitif. Right. Uh, but the design team of the time uh, pointed out, well, people aren't going to know what to do. They're not going to know what to play. They need something comfortable that they can slip into in the form of a class. So that's where the clans came along. And I think it's uh, Chris McDonough who is supposed to have said, where's our wizard? You know, where's our magic user? Yeah, where's the user? fighter? Where's the wizard? Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so that's led to uh, arguably the core clan with the least attachment to any vampire mythology uh, being brought into Vampire the Masquerade from Ars Magica. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, House Tremere are uh, one of the houses of the Order of Hermes in Ars Magica. And because that was a property owned by uh, Mark Reinhagen. Well, I think it was owned by... Was, was it owned by White Wolf at the time? It was a Lion Rampant yes. game, either way. Yeah, yeah, when Lion Rampant merged and, and or, or reformed his White Wolf, Ars mm. Magica came along with them. Yeah, so the Tremere migrated from Ars Magica. And that led to some strangeness in later editions of Ars Magica because eventually that property disassociated from White Wolf. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Tremere, however, was still a White Wolf property. But yeah, the the reason for the Tremere existing in Vampire the Masquerade is simply because they wanted a wizard class. So people who like playing magic users in D&D had something they could play in Vampire. And, and, and the Tremere are yeah. actually weirder than that. Um, it's, and I'm glad you brought this up because it's one of the points I was doing in my research. Um, uh, one of the things I've always loved slash, I don't want to say hated, the things that are odd about the Tremere is that, the, first of all, their back history is bonkers. Um, uh, it, so like basically it comes down to, uh, one guy's like, I'm, I, we should be immortal. We're mages. We should be immortal. I have this great plan. We're going to become vampires. That'll be great. Nothing bad will happen. Um, <laughs> narrator. <laughs> right. <I did>. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, um, uh, uh, around 1022, uh, Gordrick's like, oh, we're doing this. He gets seven of his buddies and they have, they, they do the ritual and they all become vampires, but their magical ability is destroyed. And that's a pretty common known thing. It's like, you know, oh, well, we used to be mages, but we kind of reclaimed thaumaturgy. But there's a bit in the middle because of the Ars Magica stuff that's strange because they had to kind of, at the time, still keep Ars Magica connection going. Mm-hmm. So there's about 40 years where the, they just keep pretending to be House Tremere. They have no magic. And they're steadily embracing the other vamp- other mages in their house, knowing it destroys their magical ability. <laughs> and then going to other mages' houses going, no, nope, no, we're still mages. This is cool. But you look kind of pale. No, 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 no. We're still mages. Look, see. <laughs> Flowers. Magic. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but the wonderful thing is you can uh, theoretically fool a mage like that, uh, especially with the death, I guess, of vulgar magic around. Uh, with Ars Magica, of course, you're playing mages who are of the Merlin variety where you can do these epic, earth-shaking feats without being zapped into a paradoxical realm or turned inside out. But around the time of, I guess, the Dark Ages, well, the Middle Ages, historically, uh, that's when that kind of belief is on the wane because of the rise of the church and and also reason. And so, uh, yeah, your house Tremere mages, uh, in in quotation marks, uh, (laughs) could just well say, well, you know, we're just being very discreet. This is subtle magic, what we're doing. This rabbit <laughs> that I just pulled out of a hat is... <laughs> it, it's you know far too vulgar to throw fireballs around now. And then he turns around and says, work on a fireball, blood sorcery. 
God's sake. And yeah, so, it, yeah, exactly. It's, it's like, 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 obviously they get the homosexual later, but I just imagine there's like this weird pair where it's like, shit, 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 um, um, quick, uh, throw rocks at them. I don't know, you know, uh, play, play the torch. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> what I was going to ask, is like, when did they get their magic back? Like, how did that stop destroying, like, how did that end up working? How did they get magic into their blood again? Uh, I don't um, think it's ever really ascertained, honestly. <laughs> it's not, not from my uh, experience. But again, as I said, the... Uh, because the House Tremere and Ars Magica kind of slips in and out of the law uh, because of the, the White Wolf ownership, uh, it, I guess, became less of an issue. Uh, certainly the game moved away from the Tremere issue of Ars Magica because that, that game has a vast, sprawling metaplot all of its own. It didn't need to focus on right. the vampire side of things. Uh, but yeah, they just ended up with thematurgy, and then of course that all kind of got retconned anyway, because you still had mortal members of House Tremere popping up for the next several hundred years. Uh, a reference in Vampire: The Dark Ages and Dark Ages Vampire and Dark Ages Mage. So it's all it's all very confusing. It's all very weird. Hence the title of this episode. <laughs> Actually, um, one piece of that which leads to my next, next bit of weirdness. Um, the the ostensible reason, Dixie, is that uh, House Tremere wanted to start researching how to create blood magic to to replicate their lost gifts. So they spent all this time figuring out, okay, you know, okay, if I bleed on this guy, what happens? Okay, nothing. If I, if I <laughs> set my hand on fire, okay, that, that didn't work out well. You know, that's how mages do it. That's just really funny to get a picture. Like, it's some guy just like gets a paper cut and like touches someone. He's like, did I do anything? No? All right. <laughs> I guess it's drawing exactly. Uh, yeah. Well, if I my hand. But then um, the, 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 the extension of that is that once they do develop thaumaturgy, there's, there's, chunks of the lore that really heavily reinforce that they're very protective of of thaumaturgy don't teach it to anybody except for literally every canon character ever outside of the Tremere clan because if you look through the first and second edition books every NPC has a couple of dots of thaumaturgy (laughs) keep it secret and by secret I mean tell everyone (laughs) right yeah, that, that, the stat blocks in those old city source books, and uh, to be honest, any source books, whenever a vampire was presented, they were always amped up a little, a little too mm-hmm. much. Uh, uh, you know, you could have a neonate anarch, and they would have seven dots of disciplines, which may not sound like a huge amount, but that I can understand why the writers of those books were adding NPCs that could, I guess, stand the test of time and pose a little bit of a threat if the coterie of uh, player characters, uh, I guess, attacked this one person all by themselves. Because, again, the idea of coteries, of course, is the idea of a party, uh, a gang of vampires, but very often... NPC vampires aren't presented as coteries. It seems to be a uniquely player character thing. Uh, you get it at the back of city source books, some of the old ones, especially like mm-hmm. in original Chicago by Night and Milwaukee by Night and our V5 Chicago by Night uh, 2, where you get these kind of coterie charts where everyone's relationship is uh, joined up by arrows and what their perspectives are of each other and such. But they are never ever presented in the fiction as working together. Every single vampire Mm -hmm. is their own private island, they've got their own territory, they all hate each other, and yeah, they all have blood magic for some reason. (laughs) Blood magic's cool. 
yeah, exactly. Everyone's got something on the Tremere, I think. That's the uh, that's the truth of it. Yeah. But yeah, and, and, I mean, I, I, I think some of that comes from we talked about earlier about the, the early '90s kind of design inspiration. So some of that is um, much like we're saying the clans are kind of roughly what there are. D&D glasses, um, elders and powerful vampires were the closest thing the game had to monsters in some respects. Um, in right. fact, some of the very earliest vampire modules were basically ones like Dungeon Crawl in Mexico to find yeah. an elder to Diablerize. Um, and the Diabler was your treasure, you know? Um, and That's a terrible treasure! <laughs> it, 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 at the time, it made sense. It was the 90s at the time it made sense. The real treasure yeah. is the Diablerie we committed along the way. <laughs> <laughs> Of an Aztec god, if I remember. The Sabbat story, yes. That's, that's yeah. terrible. No, um, <laughs> but, but I mean, the, but, I mean it, it, it's interesting is because, like, you know, look at it now, it's like, oh, it's, it's kind of not at all vampire. But, you know, not to disparage the early writers at all, because, like, you know, they were, they were trying to fumble with that. And, and during the adventure and, and some of that stuff, they were exploring. It's like, okay, go breaking into someone's burial area. T- taking their stuff is not inherently good. And so there's a couple of humanity checks. And so they're trying to explore that within the language of not, this game is still very, very new. They're still right. to figure things out. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I think some of those early source books, you can really see those sort of fingerprints of testing boundaries. Some of those, uh, I guess, I think they were Chicago Chronicles, uh, like Ashes to Ashes and Blood Bond and Succubus Club and so on. Mm-hmm. They introduced some concepts like uh, one of the characters in it gets bloodbound because his vampire rival feeds some of his vitae to a shared vessel, essentially, so a popular blood doll at the at the succubus club. So he he doses a mortal, knowing that his rival is going to drink from that mortal, and that by proxy. Blood bonds the vampire to the to the villain, and it's it's a, not a terribly complex concept, but it's one that was very swiftly dropped because I imagine as soon as you introduce things like that to player characters, that this is even a possibility, you run the risk of everyone becoming bloodbound to someone uh, dis- <laughs> uh, discreetly without any real risk being posed to you. Uh, to the point yep. that V5 has even uh, removed the possibility of blood bond via, um, I guess, transference through a goblet or the like. You can no longer bleed into a cup and blood bond someone. It has to come from the vein. And while part of that was thematic for V5, for the most part, it was to prevent all these sly blood bonds being made uh, by both NPCs and PCs, uh, because it just uh, kind of it didn't break the game, but it certainly didn't make it more fun. Right. And, it's and also so just of... weirdly coercive. <laughs> yeah. Like in a way yeah, that yeah. I like. I understand like dominate powers and stuff like that are too, but the whole like essentially slipping something into someone's drink to get them to do what you want is <laughs> maybe mm, not a theme yeah. that we should explore in games too much. No. no. It, I, I can totally understand why early on it was the, you know, kind of the the, the idea of, of poisoning someone's drink. Blah, oh, blah, yeah, I didn't think of... anything of this when I was 15. Right. <laughs> not at all. And then now it's just like, ooh, oh, yeah, nah. But, yeah, I was going to say, but it is 2019, not 1999, and uh, <laughs> I may have changed some opinions since then, hopefully. Yep, totally. <laughs> a- well, absolutely. How about those independent clans, then? Uh, how about them? So... 
<laughs> That's a way to start a, start a segment. So in I, now, you may be able to correct me on this, uh, but I believe the non-core seven clans were first introduced as sort of paragraph or sentence blocks in the first vampire players guide i think yes uh, and they were only really introduced as playable clans come second edition and so that's yep. the giovanni the asamites the followers of set and of course we know their new names now but and actually also uh, the losambrans and Misi too both yeah actually no i'll take it back losambrans and were introduced in the first uh, yes players in the guide players guide to the sabbat yeah but they were still mentioned in that players guide the first players guide is like options because the whole cyber were all like Euro trash uh, drag racers. It was weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? They were all like they were extras all like, in the Italian job? Basically, yeah. No, they were all like, you know, thrill seekers and mm-hmm. all from Europe and super, you know, wearing, wearing sunglasses and jow. You know, I mean, it was, it was, it was awful. I mean, the Zomber like, are still all yeah. cool and wearing sunglasses. That's just a fact. But, <laughs> but they're not riding Vespas all the time. So I'm I mean, I am. <laughs> Apparently that's the Giovanni now, but that, that, ciao. But that's, yeah, ciao, bella. The thank you to our oh. Italian listeners. <laughs> we just lost all of them. I now. mean, so, yeah. sorry to our Italian listeners. Very, very sorry yeah. that we did we that. Be, we're, we're, we're working, we're working away from that now, which is good. But at the time, it was you know we had paragraph to try to get some concept across. So I think most people know by now the origins of the Giovanni clan name. Where mm. uh, the the design team w- used to attend an Italian restaurant near the I guess was it was the were the initial offices in Stone Mountain? You, yes, you, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think just what you're about to tell is a myth, though. Yeah. That's, okay. Well, that's not true. Uh, I don't think. Ah, okay. Well, I I was told by a member of the design team. So this is a funny anecdote, even if it's not true. Sure. That they used to go to an Italian restaurant. It was called Giovanni's, and Mark Reinhagen believed that uh, that was a really cool name for uh, for an Italian clan, a Venetian merchant clan like the Borgias or the Medicis or mm-hmm. the like. And so that's where Clan Giovanni came along and it was only afterwards that he found out Giovanni was the owner of the restaurant's first name and not the surname. Right. Now, that's kind of become a bit over-conflated since then, it was kind of addressed in the V20 Dark Ages when the extra N was removed from Giovanni uh, mm-hmm. to make it Giovanni. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, from my design perspective, I think that's unnecessary because there are there are people with the surname Giovanni with two Ns. But I mean, true, uh, but also they just called the clan John, which is... Kind yeah. of funny when you look at it that way. Like, yeah, but I mean, it, it I, is perfectly accurate to have a character named Giovanni Giovanni. Yes, but also I remember a clan John. Doesn't yeah. sound as cool in English. <laughs> no, apparently Italian players often have a lot of fun with that. The uh, the yeah. idea that they there's this clan John, and they even go some way <laughs> to rectify that in Requiem by having the San Giovanni. So they've got the Saint Johns, but mm. the um, original Giovanni uh, sentence or descriptor like the la sombra had their bike riding euro trash was that the giovanni were a clan of venetian a merchant uh yeah a venetian merchant family uh, power brokers like, exactly yeah <laughs> uh, but yeah they were supposed to be like the, these medicis and then when they finally got their write-up i don't know who can take the credit or blame for this uh, i think andrew greenberg i know he doesn't Sounds listen to right. this but he 
he <laughs> decided, uh, someone decided Italians, hmm, powerful, mafia. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact the Mafia, uh, at least historically, haven't really got a presence in Venice, uh, they tend to be more Southern Italian and, of course, American Italian, Italian American. But, yeah, that was an odd swing that has taken many, many years to get rectified because many of these independent clans became this mishmash of ideas that didn't really gel with each other. Like, uh, I think you may have said to me at one point, Eddie, that the La Sombra have always struggled with what their identity is from addition yeah. to addition it just mm-hmm. changes they're the religious clan they're the darwinist clan they're the uh, whatever they're the euro trash clan we're the euro trash was... religious darwinist pirates why is it so hard for you to figure oh, out oh yes I'm, yeah and corsairs that's it but they, yeah. they love right. the sea how can you forget the corsairs and yeah and the giovanni are mafioso they are incestuous they are necromancers uh, they are of course bankers as well uh, and it gets even more murky when you look at all the minor families none of these so... things are mutually exclusive i don't see what your problem is <laughs> <laughs> but it's again it's a very strange mix to try and define a concept when you've got some of the core clans, which are the core clans because you can look at them and within two or three words describe what they are, uh, the those independent clans are a little murkier. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, V5 has its fans, it has its attractors, but I do feel, and I can say this having worked on it, so I have a fair amount of bias, that the, uh, the secondary clans, and I'm sure there'll be people that hate that I call them that, uh, are being fixed. I think that it's mm-hmm. the. I, I think that the work we have done, and I'm sure the work that future writers will do with U5, will make those clans fall within appropriate niches now rather than just being a hodgepodge of ideas that don't really stick together. No. And actually, um, uh, talking a little bit about uh, uh, cul de sacs, um, as it were, in the canon. Um, there actually was a abortive attempt to, to bring the mafia into Vampire before the Giovanni reforming into that structure. Um, because in Chicago by night first edition, Al Capone was a very prominent character. He was a venturer. Yep. And in fact, he was the child of the prince. Which, like, can, we, so can there... we talk about Al Capone? <laughs> yeah, let's, talk about, let's talk about Al Capone. Now, like, every time... So that, the the issue with vampire, which has been talked about off and on for you know a long time, is that if you if if you embrace a famous person or if you as a vampire become famous in that Lestat book three kind of way, that's that's a problem because you don't mm-hmm. age and you you know will eventually have to retire out of that or fake your own death or whatever. So when 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 people are presented in the canon as like somebody famous, somebody well known, someone whose picture has been on newspapers has now become a vampire, I'm always like, mm, what are they going to do with them? Like, where are they going to put him? Kill it's a little them. weird. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, yeah, it's... which is fine, but like, it's 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 strange. It's like you know, if you turn around and and embrace Beyonce, like, right, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's it is problematic. I I enjoy it as a fan and as a reader and I think sometimes you can stretch I guess the suspension of disbelief and have the uh the protagonists introduced to the mover and shaker behind the scenes and it's a smoke 
covered Al Capone. Uh, but I think also that's prone to make players laugh, especially, again, with V5, with the increasing emphasis on the idea of masquerade, hiding, hiding yourself away from Inquisitors. Right. There's very little justification to have Vampire Beyoncé or Richard Nixon running around uh, when, there's a couple. There's, yeah. there's a couple things to think about, though. Um, uh, uh, one is I do know the original intent behind Vampire the Masquerade is they wanted to be as grounded in our world as possible. They wanted to integrate um, the world of darkness history into world history, and so the logical extension of that is, you know, sometimes you're going to embrace someone not realizing they're famous or to uh, they are famous to get their power and then destroy them later. So there was definitely this crop of like Aleister Crowley, John D, Gilgamesh, Nefertiti were all vampires, and, you know, and it still happened off and on later. Um, but the other piece to remember is that Al Capone was very specifically a first edition character. Right. A lot of people when they think of Vampire the Masquerade, they think of second edition. And there was the a, a year or two before second edition came out and the Masquerade was the sixth tradition in first edition. Even though it's called Vampire the Masquerade, the, the weight of the Masquerade was much lower until second edition. Um, so vampires just didn't care as much about the Masquerade the first time around. Um, and then when second edition, you know, I, I think rightfully with the increase of uh, conspiracy theory, very popular X-Files was very popular in the zeitgeist at that time. So mm-hmm. moving the Masquerade up to emphasize that kind of conspiratorial secret war element of vampire made a ton of sense but you still have these bits from first edition where it's like why in the hell would you embrace al capone it's like well because retcon and like as much as i can understand like nefertiti or whatever i mean mm-hmm. once once we get into mass media it's when it starts getting weird you know yeah once, no, i agree once once we get in the 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 mass media age like sure somebody embraced elizabeth the first like great like let's let's go with that because you know that would have been rumors and weirdness. And there was already rumors and weirdness about every historical figure at, at, at that time. But like, once you get into like, there are newspapers all across the country right. with his photo. There are pictures of this guy. Um, yes. <laughs> or, you know, we have, we have broadcast interviews with this man on television, or we have seen this person in concert several times. You can watch it on YouTube. Then it's like, that's weird. You, you don't want to embrace that person. That's a bad person to embrace. <laughs> well, yeah, there, there are far worse. Far worse. Let's put that way. But don't worry, we'll be bringing him back for V5. <laughs> Are you really? Al Capone, yeah. Yeah, he's actually going Really sweet. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so we love him, really. Welcome back, Alphonse. Uh, but yeah, there are certain uh, real-world characters who will definitely not be making the migration over to V5 as long as I have my uh, influence, <laughs> any influence Which, over this game line. As a badge, it leads me because I think where you're going is are we, are we talking about Rasputin? No! You mean, you mean Rasputin the... who is like a werewolf and a mage and a vampire and a wraith, and a wraith all at once? I meant Heinrich he has, Himmler. He has four different clans of vampires specifically. <laughs> Yeah, they follow us at MLK as far to end adventure. <laughs> yeah, Rasputin. Well, Rasputin was fun to bring back for Beckett's Jihad Diary because, specifically, for the reason of we don't know who the hell this guy is, or what the hell this guy is, or what he is communing with in South America, or all of this other stuff. It was deliberately a weird chapter: the the drowning of Rasputin. Right. And it was fun to have him back in play, and by the end of it, just thrown into the sea uh, with a anchor, I think, tied around him. Yeah, um, like that by Vikos. Eddie, 
Yes. Can can you confirm or deny was did did that happen just because every game line kind of wanted to claim him and it just happened? Like every different developer just was kind of like, I'm putting Rasputin in here because he's a cool historical figure, and then it just from what I. From what I understand, it yeah. was the first the first time it was an accident. It was flat, just straight up an accident. Um, uh, one, you know, two people both were thrashed, and it came up online as, as a as a joke. And then that's around the time when um, the, there was a kind of an ideological switch from let's present this as one cohesive universe to let's just throw a bunch of stuff out there and, and all have it be unreliable narration. Right. Um, so it did become kind of an intentional, almost in joke. After a point in time, they, we, they were in the gag. It's like, yeah, let's put Rasputin in everything. But also, if you look at the later write-ups, there's a lot more. Rasputin is, is alleged to be a child of Gaia. Rasputin is alleged to be a puppeteer. Of right. So it's like they're, they're hedging it because it was the, okay, for some reason, this guy has this weird disproportional amount of cachet inside all the world darkness. Let's actually run with that and see where that goes. Mm-hmm. Um, but my understanding was, yeah, the first couple of times it was definitely a mistake. But later, the later ones were more intentional. That makes sense. Yeah, I think it works for the character, honestly. It ties into the mythology. Admittedly, uh, again, he's one of these individuals where when you speak to Eastern European fans of Vampire, they don't know why there's such a fuss over Rasputin because the fascination with him as a character seems to be mostly restricted to Britain and America. And Mm -hmm. uh, people in Russia really don't see him as uh, an historical figure of importance whatsoever. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. So the fact that we've got a chapter dedicated to him in Beckett's Jihad Diary is a very odd thing for for Russian fans. But there we go. Uh, it can't all be Baba Yaga, which is another <laughs> piece of uh, vampire weirdness. <laughs> but, but before we get on to Baba Yaga, Baba oh. Yaga does actually play a part. Does she play a part in Transylvania Chronicles? I believe she does. It's yeah. So I know you were looking up the Transylvania Chronicles a little before this, or speaking to Neil about it. I was, them. yes. Cause, well, yeah. Like when we were when we talked about doing this, I I reached out to to Neil Price because he was the other developer on Becca's Jihad Diary, and I knew that he read a bunch of stuff during that time. So I was like, "Can you tell me some vampire weirdness?" Since he read like everything, and. He told me a few things. Unfortunately, like I said, it was like cramming for a test, and I didn't retain all of it. <laughs> um, yeah. well, well, Transylvania Chronicles is arguably the most definitive, uh, I guess, chronicle for Vampire the Masquerade, ranging, I guess, from second edition through to revised era in a way. It's got four source books for it. It spans Dark Ages through to the modern era, mm-hmm. and it is... Arguably the most meta-plot-laden chronicle uh, in that it has knock-on effects that you can feel through the Vampire the Masquerade novels mm-hmm. uh-huh. and a lot of, uh, I guess, ancillary source books too. Uh, and outside of the first book, it's very much a watch-as-these-events-take-place game. Uh, yes. And this is a, a problem with a hell of a lot of Chronicles, not restricted to Vampire the Masquerade campaigns as well. Any uh, any adventure that participates in Metaplot often has the designer aiming for the Metaplot to resolve in a certain way because they need to know what's going to happen in the next book because right. they'll be writing it, presumably. And so that was the case with the Transylvania Chronicles and the Giovanni Chronicles as well. 
the major issue with Transylvania is it wasn't restricted to one clan uh, or one clan's affairs like the Giovanni Chronicles was, uh, which is by no means a perfect set of books in that regard either. But the first book I remember being very fun for me in my group because it was all about base building. You could claim different parts of Transylvania and the Voivodates, and it gave you all kinds of interesting information about different cities around the area. And it was like a base building campaign. It was quite good fun. You had to uh, engage in diplomacy with all the different vampires around. The plot wasn't terribly strong, but it was a nice setting. After that, though, Lucita and Tole and a whole bunch of other heavy hitters start moving into the story. And at this time, yeah. when it was written, they weren't heavy hitters. Not really. They were. They had appeared, I think, in Transylvania by night, but none of the clan novels were out by this point. Mm-hmm. So it was the Transylvania Chronicles that made so many characters as important as they ended up becoming, which is very odd because of how how in retrospect so many people look at the Transylvania Chronicles as a rather flawed series. By the end of it, you have to kind of stand by as the Tremere anti-tribute are just obliterated, as a vampire anti-diluvian wields a nuclear weapon, and Sorlot says something profound to you before disappearing up his own ass, and you... (laughs) That's for you, Neil. And... But yeah, you you don't get to impact any of that, and yet no. the contents of those books went on to directly inform things like Gehenna, the clan novels, and so many other source books. But it has kind of the weird problem that um, Dragonlance did to a certain degree in the eighties, um, where the advent- Dragonlance adventures come out, they become popular. The novels kind of spin off from the adventures. It's a pretty short time period between the adventures and the novels, but I'm almost positive the adventures came first. And so if you play the original modules, like the first 12 modules of Dragonlance, they're still also kind of railroady because either there was an intent for novels there or it was just they need to get to the next adventure. And so you have this kind of weird case where I read the novel and you play the adventures, oh, it's exactly the same thing. Whereas with Transmitting <laughs> Chronicles, they at least try this kind of Rosicrans and Gildersturm style of playing within the cracks right. of the meta plot. Yeah. But it just gets harder and harder as you get further on. Yeah, like I've I've I heard that about most of the chronicles, like the the Giovanni chronicles. You start out and you play through like three different generations, like not not like play, play the same characters, but you go through like many many years of playing the same Giovanni in various historical situations and things like that. And then in the fourth chronicle, suddenly you're playing like a group of neonates fighting your old characters or something, trying to undo all That's... the stuff you just did. Yeah, and I'm going to stand up in defense of that because oh. <laughs> okay, so okay, the Giovanni right. Chronicle so the Giovanni Chronicles is uh is a series that starts off with a very strong premise. It's more well suited to LARP actually, the first chapter of that chronicle than than tabletop, I would say, because of the sheer amount of narration that the storyteller has to do, but the story itself is pretty good. And you're all embraced a big banquet and you get to witness and take no part in the Diablerie of Cappadocius and so on. Now, you, yeah, as you say, you play those same characters tale by tale going through about, I guess, 600 years of play. Yeah, it's, it's, it's 1444, 1666 and 1888 because that's, that's a it. convention they had to deal with apparently. 
Hmm. And then, of course, yeah, you're playing Neonates in the last one. Now, I actually think the fourth part is the strongest part of all of those Chronicles because your characters are so ridiculously powerful by Giovanni Chronicles 3 that nothing can stand in your way. If you really want to push the walls of the Chronicle, you can do so, which means the purpose of the book telling you what's going on is pointless. They they just have to wade down with... Uh, deus ex machina repeatedly to stop you from being able to interact with what's going on so they releasing a fourth one they had to uh tone down your power right so my and go ahead no no, sorry go for it okay okay so (laughs) my my problem with it is not that the concept of that isn't cool especially the concept of the like fourth one where you're fighting against previous characters whatever like, that actually does sound cool. My problem is that if you're going to have me play Scion Origin, Scion Hero, and Scion Demigod, I had better get to fucking play Scion God. And if I finished Demigod <laughs> and you looked at me and you were like, okay, now we're going to play mortals that have no powers fighting uh, Demigods, I'd be like, well, cool, we're all going to die. Great. So, like... Oh, yeah. I it's would, not perfect. <laughs> I just feel like as a player, I would have been really disappointed if I had been yeah, like... Yeah, and people hated it. Yeah. Like... Had that been the concept from the start, that's actually kind of cool. You know what I'm saying? Like that's 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 a mm. really cool idea. Um, I like the idea of doing all these weird machinations and then having to fight against the plot that you yourself created, because uh, that's that's interesting. That's 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 subversive. But also, if you're gonna just kind of telegraph to me that I'm going to get to be a god by the end of this, then you better let that happen. <laughs> so I, I did I did uh, run into someone who ran Giovanni Chronicles, uh, and they found the best way to run it is to run the fourth part first, and hmm. then run the other three parts after that. So you get to play through the demise you're going to end up seeing. That's kind of cool. The machete, the machete hack of uh, exactly right. the Giovanni Chronicles. Mm-hmm. I don't hate that. Like show well, show that the ending they, they first, and, then and also because work toward it. Right, and because it's Giovanni, that whole kind of inevitability of death thing actually plays well into the themes of the clan specifically. I mean, that's what John's uh, that's all Samuel about. Samuel Hate. Right? Well, actually, Samuel Hate isn't really a vampire character, is he? I was just uh, going off on a tangent again. Uh, that's uh, another Rasputin-like character who right. was introduced in Werewolf and then became a mage and a skin dancer or skin changer. And and a ghoul as well, wasn't he? He had every single subtype. Where Rasputin appeared in every single book, every single game line almost, as a version of that game line. Samuel Haight is another character, a weird character, who went from game to game adding templates onto himself <laughs> and no, so would... he does appear actually in a vampire book because i think he's in the end of new orleans by night he does um and i will mildly defend sam hayton the fact that he was intentional um uh from what i understand again talking to guys who worked on it um it was meant to kind of it's meant kind of like a crossover like in a comic book sense of People who want to follow the, the inevitable fate of Sam Haight can actually will be, might be interested in picking up the other games and trying out these other modules to, to to see what happened with them and to kind of show what happens when a character actually breaks through the walls of the different games to show more the fact that the World of Darkness is a more more unified universe than was originally presented at the time. Mm. Um, uh, uh, we could argue whether that was a successful attempt or not. I mean, his, his um, ultimate fate is as an ashtray. <laughs> that is correct. He has turned into an ashtray at the end because mages. 
But also um, he comes but, I mean, back in a werewolf SAS? Yeah. Well, that was... He, uh, uh, he did come back, and I was actually... Um, I would take the blame for that. Yeah. Um, he does come... <laughs> He, I asked to ask for him to come back in a Werewolf Twenty SAS, um, and, and before he doesn't come back, um, the skin that he used comes back. Right, right, um, right. But it was very explicitly this was Sam Hate's thing. Here's a nod to canon, because I felt like the idea behind it was cool. Was that you know that that these um, uh, characters have an impact on the world that lives beyond them, and so even though he's now an ashtray. Um, that the horrible things he did could still resonate and come around. So, I mean, it was, it was an attempt to redeem weirdness, like, you know, redeeming the, the dirty secrets of black hand, which we have not talked about yet. Oh, we probably um, should. We would in a second, but I mean, so, I mean, I, I think there are ways you could take some of this weirdness and make them into genuinely cool and interesting things. And right without, you can't do it without acknowledging. Yes. This was a little off the rails. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Just dirty secrets of the black hand. So yeah, Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand has a lot of very strange features in that book. Uh, all the way from time-traveling vampires to alien viruses and all kinds of things in between. The I, I remember the backlash. This obviously not when it came out. I was probably about nine years old when it came out initially. Uh, it came but, out in 94, so you are correct. Yeah, we were both nine. <laughs> Uh, so young, so innocent, so completely removed from Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand, and thank God we did. <laughs> uh, I remember when I worked on V20 True Black Hand, I read Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand, probably for the first time all the way through, and I didn't think it was that bad, really. I just thought it's it was an, it's an interesting concept piece, because what it does is, again, position various elements of Vampire the Masquerade in interesting different ways uh it's almost the 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 crossover book for vampire because it introduces vampires who have connections to mages introduces vampires that have connections to werewolves with abominations and things like that and we did the same thing with the 20th anniversary pretty much every bloodline or splat that's introduced in uh the v20 version is there as a means to bring werewolves into your game it's is Sam hate writ large? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but absolutely. but one of the biggest causes for complaint and consternation in Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand is the alien virus that that spawns the Zimitsi or their discipline, I should say. Right. Uh, which is uh, influenced by Necroscope. The, it wasn't a terribly far-flung idea, the the idea that one of these vampire clans should have alien origins because, again, that design team way back in the early 90s was looking for different concepts to shoehorn each clan into. And mm-hmm. um, I'm guessing by the description of La Sombra's Euro Trash bike riders, they were probably thinking of John Carpenter's vampires and things like that. Mm-hmm. And for Zimitsi, they were thinking of, yeah, Necroscope. And they thought, well, how can we make them alien? Let's literally make their discipline an alien virus that infected their clan founder. And that's why they can shift their skin around and their bones and, and so on. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's odd. But it isn't as odd, I think, as people like to make out. I think it's just one of those pitches that kind of missed the mark based on where the rest of Vampire the Masquerade was. 
see, I, I, am, I am an apologist for the series of Black Hand. Um, and this is something that uh, initially, um, I came up with fandom hating the book because I was told that I was supposed to hate the book, right? It's the, this is the book that everyone dumps on, so I, I got to dump on it as well. That's what, I hadn't actually read it. Um, it was just the fandom wisdom. And then I remember getting into a conversation with, with Justin Achille um, as we're working on V20, and I made a snide comment to Six of Black Hand. He's like, that's a great book. Like, completely seriously. And I'm like, oh, okay, what about it? And so he's like, have you actually read it? I'm like, okay, no, I haven't. And so I read it. And you're right, everyone dings on this to this aliens, which does not take up much word count in that book, to be clear. It's kind of like a throwaway thing, really. Um, and the idea of a lot of stuff that we like, like the true Bruja, um, a lot of the paths of enlightenment, a lot of stuff that we see as quote unquote core vampire now comes from that book. So that book is way more foundational than a lot of people give it credit for. And yet everyone skips over the thing that's actually weird in that book, which is a vampire cult who lives in the ruins of the first vampire city, which is actually based in deep in the afterworld in the Wraith Necropolis. And that's their home base. And everyone yeah. kind of just skips over Enoch. And it's just like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. So <laughs> alien disease is, is weird, but vampires living in a ghost city in the other side of the shroud is perfectly fine. <laughs> Yeah, I vaguely remember that Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand gives no facility either for how these vampires feed. No, it just is. It's just a thing. And it's like, how do they get to the world? Uh, vampires. <laughs> yeah. I think, there's, I think there's one necromancy ritual that the Naharaja have, which are also introduced in this book. But that's it. It's really just kind of not even explained. It's just kind of, this is how it is. It's because it's, it's cool. And I can't argue with that. But it's weird to me that the fandom picked one relatively small piece of the book and ignored this huge, really strange concept. <laughs> uh, I would assume it's because people really like the idea of the Jimitsi, and so making them even stranger probably rankled against their, their sensibilities. Maybe. Uh, uh, it's, yeah, I think it's just it. They were this book tampered with an idea that already seemed to be set in stone. Uh, but I don't know. Uh, that's just conjecture on my part. You know, speaking of paths, I always found paths kind of strange. Mostly mm -hmm. because I've never run into a group that used anything except for the, you know, basic path of humanity as laid out. Oh, and really? Like, yeah, I've, I've never seen them used. And I've tried to, like, read through them and decide if I wanted to use one, and it always seemed like it was going to be too difficult to bring into a group. So, yeah, that was something a that, lot of like, people. I just find a little weird because I've I've played a lot of vampire and I've talked to a lot of people that played vampire and I've never heard anyone talk about them or talk about using them, which is interesting. So I find that they are a lot easier to use in Dark Ages where they are roads as opposed to paths. It's the same basic concept. Mm -hmm. But the biggest struggle I think most players have with the idea of Paths of Enlightenment in terms of playing them is if you actually adhere to this path which is a philosophy a strong philosophy almost a right. cultist philosophy this yes. should be your this should be your driving force and very few people play it like that and if they did their characters would be utterly alien to most vampires they they wouldn't fit in very well with vampire society and i think the path right. of bones or road of bones and and the path of metamorphosis and the road of metamorphosis really emphasize that that if you follow these you are completely weird you're strange no one will be able to relate to you because you are more comfortable speaking to dead bodies or you're more comfortable just messing around with flesh like it's play-doh yeah because there there are a few of them where like if you actually followed all the ethics of it 
I mean, you wouldn't be following the masquerade at all. <laughs> like there's yep, just no. it, it's it's impossible to do both. And so that no. that's always what got weird about it was because I, I I played a couple of characters at one point who I thought some of the concepts would be really cool to use one of the paths instead, but like it just it it wasn't going to work in a group setting because I was going to be this weird evil creature murdering everybody around me while we were trying to do you know missions for the prince. I will say so, the one place uh, I have found that paths really work is in a Sabbat LARP. It's a very specific edge case. I think they work um, better for Sabbat in general, personally. They, well, yes and no. Um, it, it it works well for a Sabbat tabletop game if everyone's on the same or very equivalent paths. Yeah. Um, because then your fanatical desires reinforce each other and you become more and more entrenched in the fanatical absurdism uh, of, the, of the logical extremes of your path. Um. If you have different paths in the same pack, it's just not going to work. You're, you're going to murder each other. That's just how it is. Baldur, you be damned. You're just going to kill each other off. Um, uh, but in a LARP, I find it's really fascinating because it explains perfectly why the Sabbat had not just one. Um, it's because they're too busy fighting each other. And time and again, I've seen that. I've actually run a Sabbat LARP for a couple of years. And that was something I intentionally did. It was like I would essentially provoke people with different paths and say, you know what? That guy just said that Cain isn't real. You should go murder him. Um, and the players are like, well, but that's the bishop, and I don't want to get in trouble. It's like, cool, so you don't want, pat you want me to take pass trades off is what you're saying. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. You know I mean, and that's that. it became kind of an externalized version of that concept. But I mean, the point is, is that I had to constantly reinforce the players. You're sort of right. This is alien. This is strange. These are not human thoughts you're having. So well, I'm going to constantly reinforce that because you, you're a bunch of extremists all barely holding each other together. There's, there are a couple of ways you can play it, and I think that they really add something to the Sabbats uh, from a thematic perspective, and it's a, it's a perspective that's often lost when considering the Sabbat. The idea that any vampire that is on, on a path is a form of a philosopher, or at mm -hmm. the very least, uh, faithful or religious, right. mm -hmm. uh, really helps colour and shape the sabbats and again most people don't portray them like that uh, well I say most people again I'm generalising a lot of people portray the sabbat just as this war sect who don't give a shit about the masquerade and that's pretty much them done right. but the idea that they are this magnificent tapestry of different beliefs they all believe vampires are around for a different reason they're all trying to pursue their own agenda none of these agendas are, mor uh, are moral mm -hmm. but at least from a human standpoint but they all earnestly believe something yeah I mean, and i'm not saying that it, the concept of paths is weird i'm just saying that it's really hard to implement and you're right yeah, no, and I, I think i think you're right in a secular organization like the camera and even the anarchs which is much more of a political sect uh, uh paths break down real fast right and yeah agree. in my games i don't actually have paths at the forefront as a general rule for exactly the reason you say dixie because i don't think people can implement them very well and be a cohesive group so usually if a player decides that a character is going to be on the path i'll still allow it uh, i will generally allow most things but i will have them focus on the activities of their paths in downtime mm -hmm. when the character is away from the coterie so it's almost like the coterie is the normalizing force 
that makes everyone behave and act as if they should they are part of a society but as soon as they're apart from the coterie they become monsters of different shades so yeah you're a monster on the path of cain you're a monster on the path of honorable accord and whatnot but when you're all together it isn't a sense of you are you are forced to do it and therefore the storyteller and god is just you know directing your every move you're not getting to play your character it's that you know that you can't function without these people at your side so you will do it and you'll even take enjoyment out of it because it's nice to see how the other half live from time to time Mm -hmm. but you when you get alone time and you get to spend time among your own people you can become the monster you've always wanted to be okay let's get back to weird stuff (laughs) (laughs) well well we have reached an hour but is there is there anything else that's particularly weird about vampire the masquerade there's actually quite a lot come to think of it (laughs) um one thing i will say um it was more of a uh of appreciation it it was it was it was uh, i I went to um actually at dixie's suggestion i went to uh, tv tropes to see what they had to say about vampire the masquerade um and they had different columns like you know weird funny trivia and of course they had a lot of debate about well why is this thing this doesn't make sense and then the sub bullets actually explain it so that was interesting to see the fans on that page try to explain it yeah it's actually pretty um, cool yeah it was, it was really neat but one of the the, the 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 notes the trivia notes was um about becca's jihad diary specifically oh Ooh. um and it's and it is great is that every time beckett says i think i understand what's going on something explodes almost immediately afterwards yeah pretty much <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, that's pretty much back in a nutshell. I think, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> yeah. I have two weird things. One is a one is a fucked up thing, and one is just a funny thing. Um, okay. I don't remember where it happened, but I know at one point someone, I think Sasha uh, Vikos, they used physics. I can't say the word. I can't. This dude. Sure, I've never been able to say it <laughs> properly. They used their power. To put a layer of bone over some other guy's face so that he had to break it whenever he woke up. Mm, that's in Mexico City by night. There we go. I love that one. And uh, because it can't be removed by, like, like it has to be somebody who's, like, higher than Sasha <laughs> right. in that, Which is they're just nobody. never going to take it off. So they have to get up every day and break their face, and then they can't heal it because that'll just restore the bone that they just broke. Yeah, he so uses gross. a chisel every night to, uh, to enable himself to feed. Yes, yeah, so that's just a real <sighs> weird screwed up thing. Um, wow. Yeah, and for just the weird, funny thing, uh, subway in New Orleans. Yeah, I'll just, <laughs> right. I'll just throw the the New Orleans subway system out there, uh, which was uh, a New Orleans night, I do believe, and obviously does not exist. No, yes. every book has something of merit. Uh, every every single piece of creative output, of course, has an interesting idea, and sometimes several, and sometimes they hold up to time, and sometimes they don't. And yet, <laughs> uh, no, uh, I've I often look at New Orleans by Night as a very flawed book, and I'm really not sure what was being smoked when that book was being written. <laughs> uh, because yeah, it's got some very very odd, but also very. Uh, it's it's just 
ill thought out and it's often paired with berlin by night i think even in the cities of darkness books which combine two source books into into one uh you've got berlin and new orleans and that's a real uh trap opening that book you are kind of uh exposing yourself to the more experimental sides of second edition there right and yeah uh, all, all credit to the authors for being experimental. Again, some things stick, some things don't. We all know that. We've all done it. Yep. But but the subway in New Orleans is is not Vampire's finest hour. <laughs> it, it was kind of funny because that was one of the facts that like Neil pointed out to me when I asked him to throw me a couple things. <laughs> and uh, he actually said a little bit of, of, of trivia. He worked on one of the DC books. And he he lives in DC, or at least he lives near mm-hmm. DC. Um, but he accidentally messed up some subway stops because of the train he takes to a certain place. Mm-hmm. He was like, he's right. like, oh, the, like Red Line goes to this place, and all the people that live in DC were like, obviously this writer has never been to DC because Red Line doesn't go there. But from his house, <laughs> he takes the Red Line and then switches trains to get to that place. So it's just like sometimes even if you're a ten year resident of a city, you screw things up. It happens. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So either of you have a what final about you, weirdness? Eddie? Final weirdnesses. Yeah. Final Anything weirdness. else from you, Eddie? Oh, uh, um, honestly, we covered the, the major ones. Um, although uh, I, I still kind of love the fact that uh, Gilgamesh is claimed by just about every race in the world of darkness, but we don't actually know which one is true. Uh, Gilgamesh is claimed by the mages. Gilgamesh is claimed by the Gangrel. Gilgamesh is claimed by uh, the werewolves, but no one actually knows. Mm. And I, I think that, that to me, that's the weirdness done right. It's the taking the illogical stream of, of the muddling experimentation we talked about in the early 90s and going, okay, how can we actually weaponize this into an interesting, cool, compelling note? Yeah. I mean, even Tiamat is a vampire in first mm-hmm. edition Vampire the Masquerade right. uh, in Diablery Britain. That's mm-hmm. another chronicle where you have to just hunt down a vampire and diablerize them. <laughs> You've got Diablery Mexico and Diablery Britain, and the title tells you everything you need to know about what's in that book. Right. Spoiler alert, there's going to be Diablery. <laughs> there's also a magical sword in Diablery Britain. You can pick uh-huh. up a magical broadsword that kills a vampire with one hit. Uh, you can you can very easily see the D&D influences. But again, a lot of these people were brand new, not just to vampire, but were brand new right. to writing RPGs. Yeah. And we we all look back at our first projects and think, eh. yeah, <laughs> so do I have any lasting weirdness in Vampire? Yeah, and you know what? I'm going to pick a little on one of our books, okay, uh, Onyx okay. Path. I'm going to pick on V20 Dark Ages. All right. Oh, no. <laughs> and uh, bear in mind, I've worked on the source books of V20 Dark Ages. I've got a lot of love for the Dark Ages. And in fact, I run more games in the Dark Ages than I do in the modern era. I'm just more comfortable running games in that setting. Mm-hmm. But I find some of the choices in V20 Dark Ages very weird as far as it gels with, I guess, the meta plot uh, as far as it goes. Because, of course, it's a 20th anniversary. We aren't furthering meta plot, but we are sometimes expanding it to cover places and people that we haven't ever addressed before. And we decided 
and I say we because, you know, we are all on its path here, we decided to put Bloodlines in for the Niktuku and the Aramains and the Kia Seed. Right. And these were, in some cases, Bloodlines that have already been established as being created 100 years prior to the modern era. Mm-hmm. In some cases, it was uh, that they aren't a bloodline. They are Methuselahs of Clan Nosferatu that are trying to cannibalize every other Nosferatu. So, but Thank now you. they're a bloodline. Uh, and the Kia Seed's genesis completely changed. And it's not weird from a first-time reader's perspective. That's the great thing about so many of the things we talked about, to be honest. it's If this is the first book you picked up, you're going to take this as normal. But this right. is the risk with Metaplot. If you have read as many books on the subject as we have, you come across something like the Kia Seed now being embraced changelings, and you think, hang on, that's not what the Kia Seed were in the last book I read. and it's where you draw the line it's whether you think okay well i can use this drop this you know treat it like a toolbox or whether you try and find a way to mesh both realities and sometimes it works god the number of people who have tried to work out harder stats actual generation or who (laughs) mithras's sire is uh, and that's that's the one that it still comes up on forums today who is mithras's sire this book says this this book says that and this book says hard status fifth generation this one says he's sixth generation and and so on and often of course the reason is the writers didn't speak to each other they made a typo the editor missed it but it's from these weirdnesses that incredible fan theories come about and stories then develop. In the case of Hardstadt, it was retconned that Hardstadt was the child of Hardstadt uh, to make the generation gap make sense. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, Hardstadt, the older Hardstadt, the younger, yeah. Yeah, because in... Uh, Transylvania Chronicles and Giovanni Chronicles, he has two different generations and two different embrace dates, if I recall correctly. So, yeah, come revised. Nope, they're two different vampires. And and I admit, I I love that. Um, Of course, I I come from the Sherlock Holmes fandom, where they take every single obvious error, you know, times where where Conan Doyle was clearly writing just for the money and didn't care about continuity, and just treat it all as completely accurate and try to make it all work. And and that becomes, that's why they call it the great game. Um, And it becomes a game. It's like, how do we make these obviously contradictory information actually work? And the fact that it was happening while Vampire was being written, and so that the Vampire property itself kind of adapted and accommodated these notes and ideas is just endlessly fascinating to me. So, I mean, it's like my first thought about this idea of talking with weirdness vampire it's definitely from a place of love because it's like i personally love this weird contradictory mess of a setting in so many ways yeah me too well it's part of what drew me into it to be honest trying to trace lineages and and the like it was what really invested me in metaplot it was trying to thread some loops in in metaplot because uh, it just it was so intriguing to me as a reader. Mm-hmm. And while I don't always use it in my games, I find it a lot of fun to read. Absolutely. So yeah, I think that's us done with Weirdness in Vampire the Masquerade. I hope that's been interesting to listeners who like Vampire. Maybe you've learned some new horrifying secrets. <laughs> yeah, and there is a whole bunch more, obviously. If people have anything they want to drop in the comments or talk about, feel free to do so. Definitely. Yeah. And if you love this kind of continuity, if you haven't already picked up uh, Back at Jihad Diary, definitely pick it up because that, that whole book is a love letter to this kind of nitty gritty detailed continuity stuff. Mm-hmm. 
Yep, that is the sum. Uh, Neil and I worked very hard on that book, as did all the writers. And it's the sum of my, uh, I guess, years and years and years of studying vampire books just got vomited into Beckett's Jihad Diary <laughs> and, re- and assembled into a vague order of transcripts, diary pages, and blog entries and so on. But I think it, it holds up. People seem to enjoy it. Jacob Burgess is definitely in love with it, so that's all that matters. Well, yeah, that is all that matters, really. So... <laughs> Dixie. Yes. What are you working on right now, and where can people find you? Working on all kinds of things. Uh, some exalted stuff, some chronicle stuff, a lot of things going on. So I'm not going to give any specific answers because there's a lot happening. Uh, people can find me at DixieCochran.com or DixieCyanide on pretty much all social media. And what about you, Eddie? What are you working on, and where can people find you? Um, uh, now that uh, Aberrant is off to editing, which is one of the many things that Dixie has to work on, um, uh, we're moving things uh, forward with that. In fact, um, I just nailed down, uh, Justin, speaking of Justin Kelly, um, he's actually going to be writing a little essay for us in uh, the character of Duke Rolo, which was uh, Aberrant's uh, gonzo journalist. So cool. Um, so that, I think it's going to be really, really fun. Um, and people can find me, uh, my website at pugstudy.com. From there, you can find all my uh, social media outlets. Um, and also, if you want more about Pugmire, realmsofpugmire.com. And what I'm working on right now is I am promoting the Mummy the Curse second edition Kickstarter uh, like like it's going out of fashion uh, and uh, yeah if you haven't backed that yet already please do give it a look it's fantastic evolution of Mummy the Curse and a lot of people really seem to be enjoying the manuscript so far uh, I am also working on all kinds of they came from stretch goals but yeah it's, it is a busy time as we close in on the end of the year people can find me on matthewdawkins.com and before I do the Many Worlds One Pathcast, I should I should say that now, here on this podcast, I'm going to announce something very, very important, Uh-oh. very impressive. And I can say this from my accumulated vampire knowledge, from years of study. I can say this from working on Beckett's Jihad Diary, from working on the Fall of London and various V5. I can say now, exactly... Who Mithras's sire is and what generation he was when he was embraced. Okay. Okay. So, Mithras's sire is. Oh.